0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the November edition of the Crestone Eagle. My name is Paula Vaughn. Starting with some opinions about the Baca Grand Incorporation. This opinion is written by Crestone Baca Resiliency Government Action Group questions to ask before voting on Baca Grand Incorporation. A small group of Baca Grand residents has once again raised the possibility of our becoming a municipality. Instead of thoroughly researching the pros and cons of such a momentous change for our community, they are only presenting the positives and leaping into the legal process of forming a municipality and responding to most feasibility questions with either do your own research or the community will vote on that issue at the appropriate time after our municipality is formed. We need a professional financial feasibility study before we vote on creating our own municipality. Would you purchase a house without knowing what it will cost? The Governance Action Group of the Creston Baca Resiliency Initiative begun in 2017, interviewed various entities, including the Colorado Department of Local Affairs (DOLA). a primary reason for the meeting with DOLA was to ask the representatives specifically about the process, advantages, and disadvantages of the BACA becoming a municipality. DOLA began by asking the key question, what would you have if you became a municipality that you don't have now? They noted that it is highly unusual for a Property Owners Association (POA) to provide all the services that our POA does, along with our county's support. We have emergency services, parks and green belts, road maintenance, and law enforcement provided by the POA in Swatch County. What would we lose or be taxed for if we incorporate? A professional could realistically project this. Some assume that in the event of incorporation, the POA would be dissolved and all of its assets given to the new town. This would only be the case if a majority of a voting quorum of POA members approved the dissolution. If that wasn't the case, and we found ourselves under both a municipality and the POA, how much in legal fees would we all pay if, for example, the new town passes an ordinance that conflicts with POA covenants or restrictions? We are only directly represented by one of three county commissioners, but past experience shows that our county commissioners are generally willing to accommodate our community's desires. If we wait until after a municipality is legally formed to figure out how we will pay for it, is it possible to reverse course and return to our POA, where non-resident owners pay for much of our infrastructure? During the third meeting, Desiree Marceau dismissed previous years of research on incorporation, saying that there had been talk in the past regarding annexation or incorporation, but no one followed through with actual paperwork. It's not that we never got around to filing for a town structure. Rather, we could not figure out how to pay for it, given that we don't have a commercial district suitable for a tax base. If taxes are raised significantly to create a municipality, many, if not most of us, could no longer afford to live here. If we want to incorporate as a town, whether through statutory or home rule, we need to be able to afford it without paying exorbitant taxes, especially since, in the event that the POA is not dissolved, property owners would be paying both POA dues and additional taxes. Since the POA's inception, Local members have benefited by non-resident property owner dues. We won't have that outside income if the POA is dissolved. Our thorough research initiatives in both 2003 and 2008 came to the same conclusion. Without a commercial district, a municipal structure would be too expensive for property owners. If property owners pay more in taxes, that increase will also be passed on to renters. Currently the town of Crestone benefits immensely from both local and online sales taxes from the BACA's population of roughly 2,000 residents. Where would the BACA's commercial area be located? The POA platted Elk Park only for light industry. How long would it take to create a new commercial district in the BACA? How many more retail stores and restaurants could our entire community support? Would online tax sales tax revenue make up the difference? As a municipality, we would be eligible for government grants, but those are mostly matching grants. Contrary to some information being disseminated on this issue, the majority of roads within the BACA would not be eligible for state maintenance funds because they do not meet state road road standards. The county can also only maintain state-approved roads, which is why the POA maintains most of our roads. How would a town pay for this enormous expense? What if, instead of jumping into incorporation, we hired a professional to study the financial implications of whether this is the time to move from a POA to a municipality. We could plan now to dissolve the POA when it is financially viable to do so. And we have some letters to the editor on the same issue. Our first letter. When I got the postcard about possible formation of a town in the Baca, I wrote an email to the sender asking for information and was ignored. Subsequently, I attended a Zoom meeting on the topic. Here are my observations from that meeting. 1. There is absolutely no information forthcoming from this group about the cost of a new township. They say they can't make a budget until the town is formed. Why would someone vote for or buy an idea that, is, that it's likely they can't afford? They should be able to provide some clue about what the cost of running a town might be. It appears that this research hasn't been done. 2. The group stated that most question mark, funding would come from government, county, state, federal, grants, and CDOT grants to pave the roads. They seem to have forgotten that grants, public or private, are not guaranteed funds. All the money any government has comes from tax-paying citizens. The Baca Grand Property Owners Association depends on income from members, so exactly whose taxes will pay for this new town and its redundant infrastructure. 3. Colorado towns are either home rule or not home rule. State laws pertaining to home rule towns differ a lot from non-home rule towns. When asked about this, we were told Oh, we'll figure that out after the town's formed. So, if the court allows the vote, we won't even know which kind of town we'd be voting for or why. Four. The Town Formation Group emphasized need for affordable housing. We do need affordable housing, but I can tell you that residents and members of BGPOA will not be able to support the second layer of governance, mill levy, etc. The Town Group always references infrastructure, but they don't seem to recognize BACA Water and Sanitation and BGPOA as entirely independent entities from the proposed town. 5. In the Zoom meeting, emphasis was placed on getting all roads paved. Why? So everyone can drive faster? The town proponents seem to have done little research into BGPOA roads or road costs. What makes anyone believe CDOT will pave poorly engineered roads, some can't be rerouted to be paved properly, at exorbitant expense in a remote community? 6. Most importantly Assuming that BGPOA will cease to exist because a town is formed, coinciding geographically with BGPOA, is blatantly false. The bylaws, Articles 14.1 and 14.2, and Articles of Incorporation, Article 10, mandate that dissolution can only be determined by a specific and substantial vote of membership. Seven. It's worth pointing out that efforts made in the past to merge BGPOA into the town of Crestone have failed, an idea perhaps worth revisiting. Somewhat ironically, Crestone's relative prosperity actually relies heavily on BACA residents. Conclusion: While I have never been an avid supporter of the BGPOA, or even POAs in general, it would make a lot more sense to put our efforts into improving the BGPOA governing documents to suit current residents. This was written by Joy Hall of Baca Grande. Another letter. At first I supported the proposed town of Baca. However, many questions asked at the meetings have been answered with 'That that will be decided after we vote for a town. How do we know what we are really voting for? We are told so much funding will be available. Specifically, exactly how much funding? Grant sources? Other sources? Charts? Details? None? Have there been financial charts showing all possible foreseeable implications to the average landowner? No. We are told there will be commercial development at the Elk Park site, which requires a water or sewer infrastructure. Our current BACA water sanitation infrastructure needs serious repair and improvements. Grant monies will be sought for these multi-million dollar improvements. Grant monies have limits. More taxes? We are told we will get funding to improve our roads. Our roads are not up to standards required to receive funding, as most of our roads are rural dirt roads. Another loan to bring our roads up to those required standards? More taxes? We are told being a town will protect our dark skies. Incorrect. Dark skies must be protected by land use codes, specifically cell tower height restrictions. The Federal Middle Class Tax Relief and Job Creations Act of 2012 allows insubstantial changes to be made to completed cell towers without community approval. Courts have determined 20 feet to be insubstantial and allowed, despite violating ordinances. The recent two cell tower proposals each would have put our dark skies at risk. Why? Because an additional 20 feet, if added later, would put those towers at heights over 200 feet, which require lighting 24-7. It is clear we cannot build nearly 200-foot tall cell towers and think our dark skies will be protected. Many communities have height restrictions of 50, 75, 100 feet, etc. on cell towers. Swatch County has zero land use codes for cell towers. Examples and proposed cell tower codes, based on codes from other communities, have been sent to the county. A request has also been sent to reestablish our Crestone Baca Planning Commission. Off topic, if you would like our community to have greater input in land use, thus protecting our scenic views, please write, email, or call your county commissioners to request the reestablishment of the Crestone Baca Planning Commission. Thank you. Also, we are told, our green belts will be protected by voting for candidates that run on preserving them. Do we want to worry about losing our green belts every election cycle, once sold, forever lost? It is clear to me that this irreversible Town of Baca proposal has not been given the proper time, research, and consideration before pushing for a vote. The lack of details is unsettling. I will vote no on the Town of Baca. This was written by Cynthia Whipple. Baca now turning to gardening news, we have the Garden Guru's Seasons Wrap-Up for 2022. This is written by Maddie Balakish. We are fortunate to have beauty all around us here in the mountains, as I write this in the middle of October. This has been an extraordinary growing season with lots of plants and flowers still giving us color at least a month past our normal season's end. Does anyone still remember the dryness of last winter and the parched May and June when we started our gardens? Remember the 25 degree night in late June that wiped out most of the apricot crop? The afternoon rains started in early July, turning our summer into a perpetual spring. Many plants that bear fruit or seed waited until late in the season to begin producing while early spring greens went on and on. Now in mid-October I'm picking the last of the green beans, corn and tomatoes. Kale is looking great, cabbages are still filling out their heads, and quite a few flowers are still beautiful. I looked around at a few other gardens as well as my own and I'm pleased to see great color in summer's last flowers. I always appreciate the chrysanthemums that start blooming in late summer and sometimes don't make it into fall here because of freezing temperatures. This year I have a beautiful purple one. Cosmos are outstanding this year as well. Their cheerful cheerful range of reds, pinks, and whites is still going strong. Marigolds are providing a strong contrasting color scheme of bright yellows, variegated oranges, and deep maroons. There are even some late season hollyhocks and morning glories. Summer's sedums are still a fine shade of dusty purple, and the silver lace vine is finishing up an extraordinary bloom season. Petunias are thriving, along with some pansies that are making a comeback. I've even got some dahlias blooming, quite unusual for this time of year. Now, it's time to do late season garden maintenance to get ready for next year. Gathering up that entire garden residue, corn stalks and bean vines, pea plants and cabbage leaves, tomato plants and squash vines, they all go straight to the compost pile. On some new areas of the garden, we've already spread some dried manure which will be tilled in and will mellow over winter for next season's potatoes and onions. In the more established areas of the garden, I'll be spreading compost and mulching for winter. This could be done in the spring, but some time to mellow over winter will give added time for soil microbiota to do its magic and for winter snows to slowly melt and dissolve nutrients to feed spring plantings. Did you have annoying critters in the garden this summer? Pocket gophers seem to have been unusually bad for some gardeners. They made tunnels throughout my mulched areas and felled corn stalks and chewed carrots and other root crops. They even appeared to have buried some dried beans, perhaps for winter rations. Grasshoppers were not as bad in my garden as in recent years. Was it the cooler weather that delayed hatching or was it the nolo bait that I put out a couple of years ago? It seemed like there were fewer birds this year, and my bird feeding neighbors agree. Hummingbirds were scarce, and many small birds that feed on the ground and on small insects were missing. Was it the unusually cool weather that delayed their diet of insects and seeds? Or was it the extraordinary drought in the mid part of the country that interfered with migration? I wish I knew. I just hope it was temporary and that they'll be back next year. It was a great year for apples. I hope everybody got some abundant local crop. My young trees did well enough for me to put up applesauce and apple butter. Other gardeners dried most of their crop, which is a great way to preserve apples for the leaner years. Even the deer appear to be satiated. I see them lying around with apples still on the ground nearby. I had lots of tomatoes this year as well. Often, Plants are frozen before the fruit can ripen and because of that, I always pick the green ones to ripen indoors. But this year, many more ripened on the vine. I finally picked all the green ones on October 15th. I'll be canning tomatoes and juices and stashing green ones for later. For gardeners with indoor growing space, it should be a good extended season. The ground is not yet frozen. This was as of the middle of October and I have lots of carrots and beets still waiting for harvest. We had some carrots last night that had an unusually sweet flavor. Cold soil temperatures often develop the sugars in root crops. Turnips are best after frost and I think beets get sweeter as well. Fall borscht is the best. Once nighttime temperatures are regularly below 30 degrees Fahrenheit, it's time to pull or dig roots to store for winter. Cabbages, kales, and other cruciferous veggies also develop their sugars after a frost. I usually leave them in the ground until the ground begins to freeze. Usually that would have already happened, but this year everything is later. If you planted late greens for salads, they should be large enough to eat by now. I am thinning the ones that are too thick and will progressively eat them until temps are in the mid-twenties. By then I will cover them with straw and see what survives for early spring salads. Last year most of the lettuce succumbed. But the spinach came back to give a few salads before early spring planted greens began producing. With luck and planning, we could have outdoor salad greens for many months of the year. I'll be sharing more information on growing flowers over the next few cold months, but I wanted to highlight what's blooming now. Those flowers will be good choices to plant in the spring to ensure late summer and fall color next year. Enjoy the colors. It's a gorgeous time of year. I know that was a little late in the season to be reading that article, but maybe it took you down memory lane. Now we turn to native plant talk, the mighty ponderosa pine tree and its amazing ecosystem. This was written by Carol T. English. Wrap your arms around a ponderosa pine. Wiggle your nose into the bark and smell its pure sweetness. Some say it smells like butterscotch. Others say it smells like vanilla. I say it smells divine, taking me back to my childhood when my mom would bake cakes in our old kitchen. Once when I was guiding juvenile delinquent boys on an outward bound course in the Sierra Nevada mountains, I was accused of hiding a vanilla soda in my backpack. The young, rather bossy kid looked at me and said, You are hiding a vanilla soda in your pack. You need to share it now. I promise you I do not have a soda, I replied to this young grasshopper. Smell this tree my pack is leaning against. This is what you smell and it is the sweetest, most soothing smell you will experience. I'm not sure I ever convinced that kid, but the smell comes from aromatic chemicals in the ponderosa bark called terpenes. Abert squirrels, also called tassel-eared squirrels, can smell the terpenes. They not only smell it, but they can distinguish tasty terpenes in one tree from the non-tasty terpenes in a different tree. Tassel-eared squirrels are entirely dependent on ponderosa pines for their survival. They eat the inner bark in winter and the pine nuts and pine cones when they are available typically in the warmer seasons. The squirrels help the trees in a few different ways. They disperse the pine seeds, they thin out the forest naturally, and they also spread a type of mycorrhizal fungi that trees are dependent upon for survival. The reproductive portions of the mushroom network pop up in the late summer. The squirrels love to eat them, then they poop and spread the spores, thus spreading the fungi. Ponderosa pines depend on the microhysal fungi, which are underground in the soil. The fungi attach themselves to the tiniest of tree roots, assisting the tree with mineral nutrition, water absorption, and disease resistance, allowing the trees to survive in dry conditions. In late fall and winter, when pine nuts are scarce, the squirrels survive on the thin, living tissue layer under the bark called the cambium. While hiking through a ponderosa forest, you may have seen the signs. First the squirrel chooses the proper tree with the proper terpene taste, kind of like humans choosing their favorite type of ice cream. Then the tassel-eared squirrel grabs a small branch, bites off the pine needles, and eats the little stick, rotating it with its tiny hands like humans feasting on a corn cob. It shaves off the bark with its sharp teeth and eats the very thin inner cambium layer. When it is finished with the stick, it drops its now light brown little stick to the ground. As you stroll through ponderosa pines, you may notice pine needle bundles on the ground, along with three to four inch long pinky finger sized barkless sticks. These are the signs that the average squirrel has been dining on the sweet cambium layer in the tree. I have seen all these signs while walking in Willow Creek Park in Crestone, where there is a small grove of ponderosa pines. The squirrel will return to this same tasty tree again and again. Eventually the tree may become so stressed that it dies. This is not a bad thing. It is nature's way of thinning out the forest. If the ponderosa forest is too crowded, the trees become unhealthy and competition for water and nutrients increases. They say long ago horse carriages could easily drive through a ponderosa forest because the big healthy trees were spaced far apart. Another very important player in this ecosystem is fire. In a natural ponderosa pine forest, fire will burn through about every 30 years, clearing out the duff and the small sickly trees. Large, mature, healthy trees are typically not harmed by these fires as the fires tended to be slow-moving, low-intensity, ground-burning fires which would simply scorch the base of the mighty pines. Because we humans have suppressed fires in these forests for so many decades, the duff has accumulated and the forests have become too crowded. Now, when a fire comes through, it is fueled with more duff and more little sick trees. It grows way beyond the ground fire, killing even the strongest mature trees. Another essential player in this ecosystem is the bark beetle. Mountain pine beetles are native to this area and play an essential role in thinning out the forest naturally. Because of climate change, the beetles can now survive milder winters in the western states. Their numbers have grown out of control and the trees can no longer fight them off. These beetles live for one year and have blue stained fungus in their head. When the beetles bore into the bark in the early summer, the fungus enters the cambium layer just under the bark and spreads throughout, eventually killing the tree. It was 1993 when that young boy, probably 14 years old, asked me if I was hiding a vanilla soda in my pack. I wonder what he is up to now at 44 years old. At 62, I still find myself wrapping my arms around the ponderosa pines and inhaling that classic sweet smell. And now taking a quick look at the calendar, we have on Saturday, December 3rd, a Town Here to Listen session at 10 a.m. And on Sunday, December 4th, Sufi Dikr, all welcome. Sufi Dikr is an opportunity to join with others in a circle of love that creates the experience of the oneness that we truly are. We pray, chant, and sing as one. Ours is a traditional Dikr of the Nur Ashki Jirai Sufi lineage. All are welcome. No prior experience is necessary. Those who participate with an open heart often report mystical experiences from this potent ancient ritual. To participate with us at the Golden Light Sufi Circle in person if you are fully vaccinated or over Zoom, please email hamidanur303. That's H-A-M-I-D-A-N-U-R-303 at gmail.com or call 719-588-8602. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us for the Crestone Eagle. My name is Paula Vaughn. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.